0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com.
1: Good morning. Today we are entering into our first chapter synthesis of my book, How to Understand and Apply the Old Testament. The focus is genre. So here's our goal. The goal in genre analysis is to determine the literary form, subject matter, function of the passage, and then to compare it to similar genres and consider the implications for biblical interpretation. So we're going to look at four four elements this morning. One, defining genre. Two, putting genre within its biblical context. Three, the relationship of genre to historicity. And then four, we'll do a little case study in genre analysis. Let's pray. Father, we need Your help. I want this to equip. You want us to know how to read Your Word faithfully. And I pray the next moments would mobilize increasingly to that end. Thank you that in our weakness, you are strong. Thank you that you are the one who can overcome resistant hearts, spiritual disability, inability to see and hear as you would have us. Help us this morning, I pray in Christ. Amen. Somebody define genre for me. What are we talking about? Okay, a category of style with respect to literature. So what type of literature it is. Anybody else? There was... Okay, a literary form. Here's my take. An identifiable category, there's our word, category of literary composition that usually demands its own exegetical rules. 13 and a half years ago, I Teresa and I moved into the area. We we moved into the area further than that, but we started going to the Sunday school at that time. And Brother Steve's dad, Dr. Bob Stein, was teaching at that time, and he was teaching through his book. Um, What's the, what's the original title? What's the main title? Playing by the rules. And then, like, I don't remember. <laughs> so, well, well, that was the original title, was Playing by the Rules. And it was a book on how to study the Bible. And he told us that um, he knew in the second printing he had to change something when he went into Barnes & Noble and found his book, Playing by the Rules, in the sports section. <laughs> So, in his book, he walks through numerous genres of Scripture and clarifies that depending on what type of genre we're looking at, the rules change. And so, so if, for example, if, if we're in the genre of apocalyptic and we start seeing multi-headed beasts and we're thinking about it through the lens of Anne of Green Gables it might wrongly uh, guide our reading. But if we know that we're reading imagery like that found in Lord of the Rings, all of a sudden we have categories to take truth, work it through a certain lens, and then interpret appropriately. So, who can give me... Some examples of genre in the Bible. What genres do we find? Just list them. Okay. So here's two main categories poetry and prose. Let's get deeper. Historical narrative, good. Keep going. Historical narratives actually can have lots of subgenres too, like what? Come on. Like what? They could include poetry, sure. Biography, okay. Okay, we could have war accounts. Genealogies, pardon, prophecy. prophecy. Okay, personal journey accounts, law. Okay. Okay, uh, we could have numerous kinds of songs like laments, praises, okay, instructions, laments, praises, love songs. Now we're getting there. Natural history, what are you thinking of? Okay? Natural history. Parables. Arguments. Okay? So, along with law, under a general category of law, there could be more legal guidelines, but there could also be more sermonic material, moral statements. Okay. Wisdom literature. And within wisdom, we could have things like Proverbs. I heard ritual. Okay. Dialogue. And within dialogue, you could have lots of different genres. Polemics. Polemics, where you're actually... Building a case against something else. And in the Old Testament, we often, well, I'll I'll put it this way. One of the features of Bible backgrounds, like the discovery of a new um, text etched on a temple wall that we had never seen before, or all of a sudden we uncover a tomb and in it we find all kinds of statues shaped like multi-headed creatures one of the, the the bible comes to us very clearly god allows it to speak without the help of usually external elements but one of the things that external elements supply is it gives us a vision for how what's actually being said in the Scripture could have been arguing against worldviews of the day. If, all, if the only ancient literature we had was the Bible, we might miss the polemical nature of this document in the way it's actually confronting alternative worldviews, thoughts, perspectives, practices. But it's the uncovery of all those other perspectives and practices that allows us to view Scripture's polemical nature. Anything else? Covenants. Excellent. And at times we even see specific treaty documents like the Ten Words put on tablets of stone. Outside the Bible, treaties uh, are quite common. One of the elements that's recognized is that there's two parties in a treaty and thus you needed two copies so that each party could take the copy of the treaty back to their own temple and put it in the presence of their gods because the gods served as witnesses of these treaties. In Scripture, we have two tablets of stone. I don't think it's because there was five words on one and five statements on the other or four on one and six on the other. Rather, there's two parties in the covenant between God and His people. And yet there's only one ultimate God. So each party, Yahweh and Israel, gets a copy of the ten words, but it's put into the single temple because there's God is operating as both a party of the covenant and the ultimate witness to the covenant. Genre. Is the word covenant always taken in a legal sense or is it brought up to the promises? Um Within scripture it it shows up in they um, they're there not always relationships, elected relationships of obligation that are legally binding but but you and I could enter into a level of partnership that includes oath and establishes a relationship, and in that sense it, Promises the dominating element there, or a dominating element, but what's at stake is we've entered into a non-family, a, a non-kinship bond where there's commitments on two sides. But it's a broad category to deal with the ultimate relationship between God and His people, kings to kings, or... It, it would be part of the... Um, nature of the relationship. It wouldn't be the essence. The relationship would be the better category to define covenant rather than promise. But the relationship is built on mutual commitments back and forth. Want to add anything else? Political commentary. Now what's intriguing here is that is that one of the authentic elements of biblical literature is the fact that it's not always pro-king. Outside the Bible, the literature we find is the prophecies we get, the uh, historical narratives are always elevating the king, not in Scripture. In Scripture, it's very honest. And so I, I just want to tweak if, if we're talking about a political commentary it's, it's still written from a divine perspective so that he as the ultimate king can look down on the political scenario that's happening in the human realm and without reservation declare it to be all botched. Filled with sin and broken. And then you added one more. Just, just story. And As story, it could be true or it could be fiction. And we find both in Scripture. Parables are fictional accounts, yet all the stories are sermons. And so we've got to get inside in order to understand genre. Mary Jane, my oldest, is no longer in our home. She's away at college. But when she was home, and... and, well, when she was home, every day, she was the first one to the mailbox. And as she gathered, I mean, by the time she entered into the house, she had already done thoroughgoing genre analysis. <laughs> the personal letters were were being assessed and opened, but all the business stuff and the Trash mail was just set aside. Always, we are assessing things. If you get a love letter and treat it as a last will and testament, you'll be reading wrongly. Genre matters. And the genres in Scripture have various purposes. All of them intended to let us encounter God but, and, and His perspective, but some do so in different ways. Just the very nature of genre, certain, certain genres are more intended to convey information or thoughts. Things like laws and historical narrative whereas others are are truly designed by the way that they're written to awaken affections and emotions, to change beliefs and behaviors, Song of Songs has a different purpose than the book of Judges. And we've got to be able to enter into reading the story and understand what that purpose was. So true we can find truth through all genres and God as we can see just looking at the board he just unloads his word through all different mediums and some of us are more affected by certain mediums than others and yet and, and that allows us then to find elements in scripture that resonate with our soul's What are clues to genre? What are you looking for? I mean, I gave the example of my daughter. She runs out, and what are some elements that she would be anticipating when she looks into the mailbox? What's determining for her her genre decisions? Is it handwritten on the front? Who it's from. So the author matters if it's a personal friend or a relative versus Penny Mac, it influences our perspe- our perception and whether we want to read it or not. Also whether it's addressed to a specific person Yeah. So yeah, if it's specifically addressed to Keith Evland versus the Evland family will determine whether or not or yeah or uh, how does it, how is it worded yeah, that's right occup- Jason Deroshi or current occup- current resident right it's it's very personal so that's good if it's spelled wrong. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. That's right. So th- those elements matter and th- they give us clarity.
0: Uh, the function of the text is very important, in my opinion. Like, for example? For, uh, the word, traditionally, there are like four different ones like informative, uh, literary, uh, expository, or the other one translating from Spanish. I don't know the translation. Appellative um, or appealing. Okay.
1: Sure. <laughs> sure. So Phil? A windowed elmo uh elmo also. What a windowed el embloe. Yeah, sure. Not or you receive something from a dear friend that's very sensitive, and you, know, you read what they say and you, you take it to heart and maybe change what you feel better about something. So the genre also is defined by who wrote it and they, who they are. Okay. So d- genre is defined by who wrote it and who they are in relation to you and and with that what their purpose is because the same source could produce materials in numerous genres depending on the, the context. Very true, very true. So the source matters. Let's, the type, okay. Oh, the title. Okay, so so just looking at the title given to a book like Chronicles versus the letter of Paul to Colossae. That... Informs right from the get-go what we're entering into. The apocalypse of John. So some of our biblical books actually have signals that are placed right in the title of those books. When you come to the Bible, what tools help guide, inform, You're reading right off the bat.
0: One is how the passage starts. If it starts out, thus says the Lord, you're dealing with one genre. If it starts out, this is what happened to so and
1: so the son of so and so the son of so and so. Sure. It's a a different genre. If it's a certain man, then you're dealing with a parable. And so how the passage starts. Okay. So how the passage starts, so you can have, thus says the Lord, or these are the visions of Isaiah, the son of Amos, that he received in the days of King X, King Y, King Z. The visions, all of a sudden, that, that enters us in, it gives us a lens. But if you read, in the days that the judges ruled, there was a man. All of a sudden, it puts us in the flow of a historical account. We're not just going to see a description of vision. On the other hand, we're, we're getting a story that is placed in space and time. There was a man... Uh, I'm trying to remember how Job begins... There was a man who lived in Uz, his name was Job, something like that. Um, versus the word of the Lord that came to Jonah. So, how it begins helps gives us, give a signal. What else? Okay, a skeptic versus a God follower is going to enter into Scripture from a a different perspective. I don't know that that informs genre categories, but it does inform how we would read those genres. So, um, what, well, for example, take the book of Jonah. Whereas I approach it, as a historical account, others see the realities of a great fish, the just unbelievable, um, far-reaching repentance of an entire people group at the hearing of one phrase 30 days from now. The judgment of God will come, and they say this is fiction. Right. But but it doesn't alter the genre. Well, means, they, they misinterpret the genre. Right. Sorry, it, sorry. You're right. If it's a parable versus a historical narrative, that matters. So there is. So so there is. Uh, that that's very very right. Um, so how we come to the account can inform our reading, but. Where do we go to determine, how do we determine whether it would be a fictional account or a historical narrative? Whether there are figures of speech or straightforward um, speech. Okay, we might look at figures of speech, whether to, to assess how straightforward it is, but in doing so, what are we doing? We're looking at the text for clues. Yeah, very true. To to see if we're being so going back to last week, we, we need to let the Scripture itself inform our understanding of genre. We can't allow as much as possible our own external pre- preconceptions about what is possible about what is true, if I allow my simple experience in life to control or to validate what is actually possible or true, I'm going to have a very small Bible. There's so much there that's, that's proclaimed, even things like, I mean, go all the way to the top, the resurrection of Jesus. I haven't witnessed that personally in my own life. And yet, I'm not the center of what is possible. I'm just one element in this world that's on the move with a God who's orchestrating all things. And Scripture, um, there's much more there. And I need to allow Scripture and its human authors as they give me these words to determine how I perceive what is real and what is true. Helpful, helpful. I think the bottom line has to be that we place the Bible in the correct genre. So the whole book, this book is either in fiction or in someplace in our library that is not written in the category of truth. It's just in a category of something else. No so from the get-go, we need to recognize the distinct nature of the book itself. It is God's word. Um, well, the nature of the book isn't by nature a genre, though. That, 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 that's what I'm getting at. God does use numerous genres as we define them, but what's at stake is um, as we approach some elements that have similarities with genres outside the Bible, we always have to keep in mind that this is distinct literature and that it could be standing against or even operating against rules that might be common in how we approach such texts elsewhere. Right, that a genre one. Right. There is no other book like it. Um, and... And because of that, even though we do find love songs, and treaty texts, and death accounts outside the Bible, we must not simply assess similarities. We always have to keep in mind the differences that we, that we are naturally expecting to be there because of the unique status this word has. Let's Let's step back. We put a whole bunch of different genre categories on the board, but what I want you to see also is that the Bible itself, the way that it is structured, breaks into distinct units. We've covered this at points in the past, but let me just survey... Up here on the screen, I have the three parts of Jesus' Bible. You'll remember in Luke 24 how he distinguished the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Earlier in Luke chapter 11, he talked about the blood of the Prophets that had been shed from the time of Abel to the time of Zechariah. Zechariah was the very last martyr, not chronologically but in Jesus' Bible, which ended with Chronicles. Abel was the first martyr in Genesis. And Jesus appears to be approaching his Old Testament, same exact books that we have, but in a different order. Jesus' Bible had a different structure. And in that structure, the storyline framed the entire Scripture. It wasn't just put up in the front like ours is. Ours starts with Genesis and moves all the way through Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And then we move on to the other types of genre books. In the Old Testament, the narrative frames the entire Old Testament in in Jesus' Bible. So that you have Genesis through Kings... So Genesis, from the beginning, God shapes His covenant people. They get into the land and they get kicked out of the land. And Kings ends with with them entering into Babylon in judgment. But then the storyline pauses. And then we get what you could call a series of commentary books that are offering perspective on the story. First you get the Latter prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12. And then you get the former writings, the chief of which is Psalms, but Ruth operates as a preface. And then you get Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Lamentations. All of these, this this middle group here, is actually performing a different function in Jesus' Bible than all the rest. It's reflecting on the story. It's adding commentary on the story. This is telling us why things went the way they did. This is informing us in how people who were living in the midst of these challenges were actually, the remnant was actually trusting in the Lord and hoping in his kingdom. And then Lamentations, at the very end of the commentary books, puts us back into the context of judgment and exile and leads us back into the story as it picks up again in Daniel. It ended off in Babylon. It picks up now in Babylon, and the story continues all the way to the end of the Old Testament era. Genre actually helps shape the very structure of Jesus' Bible with the story providing the framework for understanding everything else. You can't read Jeremiah or Ecclesiastes, rightly, apart from understanding where it fits in the grand purposes of God that begin in Genesis and ultimately move through Chronicles all the way to the book of Revelation. There's a story that's, that's guiding the entire saga. It's a story of salvation generally shaped with creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And so, Everything, whether it's the commentary books or the narrative, they're working together, but it's important to recognize that, there's, that the commentary is there and that it's influencing the narrative. Now, if we're in the book of Deuteronomy, all of a sudden we see that Deuteronomy, which begins with, these are the words that Moses spoke to all of Israel, beyond the Jordan, that's narrative, But most of Deuteronomy is not narrative. It actually tells us what Moses declared at that point in time. Or you go back to the book of Genesis, and you see in Genesis 49 an extended poem where Jacob gives his deathbed blessing to his boys. So within the narratives... That within the narrative itself, there's lots of sub-genres that are present, but it's the story that's dominating. In contrast, when you get into these commentary books, whether it's the prophecies, even in the prophecies, there's some narrative, but it's, it's all, it all has to be fit within the storyline that's told within the frame. And then when you get into books like Psalms, Psalms is written over a thousand-year period. Psalm 90 is a Psalm of Moses all the way up to the end of the exile. And they're they're packaging it all. These are the songs of the storyline. The songs of hope. The songs of the kingdom. It's messianic music. The Proverbs. I mean, so few parents were actually guiding their, their children to hope in the coming kingdom. To live for God. God's way. And yet, Proverbs supplies a... A parenting manual that was birthed right in the context of the story that shapes what a life of wisdom looks like. And ultimately, it portrays for us in an ideal way what the Messiah would look like. The very overall structure of Scripture includes elements of genre that inform our reading. So, Kings drops us off in Babylon. We see Jehoiachin raised up in Babylon, and it gives us hope at the end of the Kings that there's still a line of David, that he hasn't completely forgotten his promises. Then Daniel enters in, and all of a sudden we find out thriving in Babylon and this is an entire Jewish contingent. Indeed, even certain Jews have been raised up to power positions. And yet, those Jews, what are they doing? They're hoping in the kingdom. And the entire book of Daniel is, about, is, is highlighting the hope of God's ultimate kingdom-building plan that will overcome all the kingdoms of the world. Esther, it's about God's preservation of His kingdom people. Ezra and Nehemiah, it's about God's preservation of His kingdom land that would, from which the Messiah would rise. And then Chronicles ends... Outside of chronological order, it's the only storybook within the narrative that is outside of chronological order. It actually, the initial restoration ends in brokenness. The people are just, their hearts are bad. There's lots of wickedness that Ezra and Nehemiah are addressing. And yet, and yet, 1 Chronicles comes in, the very first word of the book is Adam. And Chronicles serves at the end of, the, the of Jesus' Bible to take the readers who are living in the midst of exile, in the midst of brokenness, wondering, has God forgotten us? And it takes them all the way back and retells the story initially through genealogies and then gets us up to David and gives the account. But it's a very different book than Kings. And it ends with this vision of hope and future fitting this people living in exile within God's purposes that began all the way with Genesis and continue now in the hope of the Messiah. Phil? So are you saying that his Bible actually had any in that world? That's what I'm saying. <coughs> you can read the first chapter in my What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About to see that unpacked and its significance. The Jews, since the first century, have taken on a number of different arrangements. And so, there, you can go out and find Jewish Hebrew Bibles that actually have a number of different looks, but all of them include law, prophets, writings. Just in the writings, they can especially, they can switch the books around, and some of them will put the latter prophets in chronological order, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the twelve, rather than in, based on size, which is how this this whole structure is. Jeremiah is the biggest, then Ezekiel, then Isaiah, the twelve. Psalms is the biggest, then Job, then Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. So the commentary books are structured according to size in Jesus' Bible, whereas the historical narrative books are structured according to uh chronological sequence. I one more. So you say Jesus had this Bible in this order, but they didn't have like printed Bibles and had scrolls. Right. So how did they know in what order they're so two things? One, the Libraries that we found in the ancient world have given evidence all the way back to the second millennium that structure mattered. That when they were talking about canonical documents, that they had cubby holes that actually the, the order mattered. And then the very fact that, all, dating all the way back to um, just after the days of Malachi, we have Jewish testimony of a three-part canon. That's how they're talking about it, even though there wasn't a book We didn't get the book called a codex until the 1st century. And it wasn't until the 3rd to 4th century that it became commonplace, especially because they used it for Bibles. That's the first major place codexes were used instead of scrolls. And yet, way before we ever have books, they're talking in the language of structure. So they're thinking about their Bible as bearing structure... Law, prophets, writings, and also as having arrangement. So at least mentally, if not physically, where they put the scroll, at least mentally, their understanding that structure mattered. But our focus today is genre. <laughs> let's 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 consider the relationship of genre to historicity. It's important to recognize that authorial intent, as we determine it by the contextual clues, and not just form, is what determines historicity. You can package real historical events in numerate, numerous genres, you can have a poetic tragedy that tells real history. Or you can have a dry narrative account that tells real history. It history and genre are not um, mutually exclusive. So consider this. You remember in first Samuel, sorry, second Samuel, when right after David had... Raped, committed adultery with Bathsheba. God told Nathan the prophet what had happened, and Nathan went in and told David a story. There was a man who stole another man's sheep. Remember, and what should be done to this man? And David and Nathan says, uh, sorry, David says, well, you need to punish him. Now, in that response, David is thinking he just heard a historical narrative. Then when Nathan says, you are the man, all of a sudden, those very words changed his reading of genre. It moved from historical narrative to a parable that was about him. That would be an example of Genesis 1, some people saying, it's not fully shaped. I mean, the the patterns, the structure, the repetition, isn't that poetry, not prose? And others will identify rightly. Well, the main narrative verb that the Old Testament uses to tell a story dominates all of Genesis 1. But simply establishing genre, ultimately, my point, is, doesn't determine whether something is a historical account or not. Take, for example, Judges 4 and 5. Here, Deborah and Barak are being used by God to overcome Sisera, king of, the, of Aram. And text is small, sorry, but let me read it to you. And Jael came out to meet Sisera, the enemy king, who's running away from Deborah and Barak. "'Turn aside, my lord! Turn aside to me! Don't be afraid!' So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug." And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. She opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is is anyone in here? Then say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Every italicized part of that account uses the exact same grammatical Hebrew verb type. It is the dominant verb type called Vayiktol that they tell stories with. So you just have... And J.L., came and he turned and she covered and he said and she opened and, she, and he drank or and gave him drink and covered him. All of these. The story is just and she did and she said and he went and he did and that's how the story is told. Now what's amazing is in the very next chapter we get the exact same account but it's in a different genre. Consider the force of telling the exact same story now through poetry. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite, the of tent dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. Can you, can you, can you get the... The different sense. It's the exact same story. Genre doesn't change its historicity. But genre does change the emotive effect of the story itself. It climaxes with these words, So may all your enemies perish, O Yahweh, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Or how about earlier? Exodus chapter 14 portrays Israel on the move, exiting out of Egypt. The story is clear. It describes how God showed up and how He overcame the Egyptians, drowning them in the Red Sea. Then we get the exact same account in Exodus 15. We read this, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. "...the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea." The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now the ESV has... Done something in order to identify for us this is a different genre. Notice the previous text here. Narrative, it just looks like a a paragraph. But all of a sudden, things shift when we get to Judges chapter 5. Similarly, all of Exodus 15. Is, is shaped this way in order to signal to you and I, get ready to feel differently about what's just been shared. Consider differences between Exodus 14 and Exodus 15. The Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind. That's the historical narrative account. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Verses, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Let us flee from before Israel, from, for the Lord fights for them. Against the Egyptians. Verses, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Who is like you, O Yahweh among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Genre and historicity are not to be equated. Historical accounts or fictive accounts can come in any Genre. So let's consider here in our last moments together a case study in genre analysis. And I'm just going to focus in now on historical narrative. It makes up 65% of our Old Testament. It contains various subgenres, as we've already seen. Historical narrative focuses on God and anticipates Christ. Historical narrative teaches. We need to recognize always, what's going on when we're reading a story, there's a sermon there. This isn't just a dry account. It is intentionally selected in order to proclaim something, in order to change thoughts, in order to motivate behavior, in order to confront wickedness, in order to display the bigness of God. Historical narratives often have intentions other than our own. This is not just objective history. There's nothing strictly objective about anything. It is massively subjective, all written from one divine perspective to communicate to a people in the way that He wants us to understand Him and His purposes in space and time. So I have a handful of guidelines that I use that I'm thinking about when I enter into a book like Judges or into a book like Esther. Number one, I want to distinguish the episode and its scenes. I'm going to comment on each of these. I want to consider literary features and theological trajectories. I want to state in a single sentence the narrative episode's main point, And then I want to draft an outline that's message-driven and that aligns with the purpose of the author. Let me unpack each of these and then I'll give a brief example of what it might look like on Jonah 1. So, distinguishing episodes and scenes. Episodes. I'm using the language that many of us are familiar with from TV series. If you think about 24 or elementary, this isn't just a select TV show like Andy Griffith where nothing connects to anything. Every episode stands on its own. Rather, you have an entire season that is built episode upon episode upon episode. In 24, it's, it's one hour every week that you get to engage of what's happening in the story now within that one hour there might be 6 scenes 12 scenes and i think it's important as we approach old testament stories to recognize that we want to grasp the episode unit within a greater storybook. We want to be able to break the storybook into episodes and then within that episode be able to understand that everything, all the scenes that are operating within it are working together to communicate the main point of the episode. These aren't just... Strings of independent stories that build one upon another, but rather the divine author working through his human agents is creating units of thought, even within the stories that are working together. And then within those units, there's different parts that are contributing to the whole. So a chronotope is the literary category where something is happening in time and yet there are specific points in that time that are working within within themselves to communicate. Literary context and theological trajectories. Here's what I'm talking about. Literary context. What happens before? What happens directly after our unit? Once we've established our episode, we want to see how its literary placement informs our reading. Plot development and characterization. What's the nature of the drama? What's the conflict of the problem? How's it resolved? These are questions I'm asking. All of this you can get more in my book, of course. Is there repetition? If there is, does it help identify structure or draw attention to things that are important? What's God saying or doing? This is His book. I mean, He'd want us to know what it tells us about Him. And then, who are the human named and unnamed characters? And what relationship do they have with God? What are they saying? What... How do their deeds and words relate to the covenant and give clarity to the point of the scenes and the episode? Number three, are there any editorial comments, often by a parenthesis, or where the narrator I mean, we only know God in the book because the narrator gives us what he says? The narrator guided by God himself, is the highest level of authority in a story. He's determining which words we get to hear, which actions we get to read about, which characters are named and not named, what they do and what they don't do. I'm not saying he's making anything up. He's just determining under the inspired guidance of God what to put in the book and what not to put in the book. In Genesis 1 through 11, we go through thousands of years in just 11 chapters. And all of a sudden, we hit chapter 12, and narrative time slows down quite a lot. So that in 40 more chapters, we get only 400 years. And then in Exodus 1 and 2, we jump through 80 years, and from Exodus 3 all the way to the end of Deuteronomy, it's 40 years of time. And the narrator, Moses, is determining what to tell us about and what not to tell us about. And in the process, he may make comments beyond the story itself. And when he does, it matters. 2 Kings 17 is an intrusive, narratorial comment on why the exile happened. Up until this point, he's just been telling the story. Northern kings, southern kings. Northern kings, southern kings. 20 kings in the north, 10 dynasties, they all fail, they go down. Why? Why did it happen? And then for an entire chapter, the narrator unpacks through editorial comment what all of that preceding material was about. How to read it in his intended way. And finally, how the narrative anticipates the work of Christ. How do we meet Jesus in this story? How does it ultimately point to Him as the ultimate end of all history? How does it, the character of Yahweh anticipate the person of Jesus? What do we learn about the major movements of salvation or punishment that inform our understanding of the Gospel? Number three. State in a single sentence the episode's main idea. Very often... <clears throat> It usually has something to do with God and usually the main point of an episode is found in a speech act rather than in the deeds of people. In 1 Samuel 17, this is not the story about David fighting Goliath. If all you do is look at the narrative, that's as far as you'll get. But if you enter in and you begin to read the speech acts, you'll recognize that the longest speech is at the end of the story when David declares to Goliath, This day, the Lord will punish you and all the world will know that Yahweh is God in Israel. All of a sudden, this is not the narrative about a young man. This is the narrative about Yahweh establishing His absolute greatness before the eyes of the world. It's almost always stated in a speech and then finally, I try to shape this message-driven outline to bring it all together. If the author of X biblical book, I, the author of X biblical book, have narrated to you this episode because. And what you want to be able to do is answer that empty space. So, time's ticking. Let's consider Jonah 1. Don't have much time, but open up your Bibles there. And I am trusting you had ears to hear this morning. So, different interpreters will shape things a little bit differently, but hopefully we all get to the same heart. Okay? So my outline might look different than Pastor Stevens, And that's okay. We're two different people, but are we being faithful to the overall flow? That would be what's at stake. Number one, episode boundaries. If you've got your Bible open and you just start reading this book, I'm looking in the story and I'm saying, okay, where do I put my frames? Where's the episode and where's the scene? Scenes within the episode. And I begin to read, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying and I can keep reading, and I'm going to keep reading. The story's just going to keep running nonstop with, and he said, and he did, and he went, and he, and he, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 1, when we get the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, we're preaching Jonah in four sermons. Rightly so. It's, we need that much time in order to unpack it. But the book itself puts it into two units. There's the first time and there's the second time. And all of a sudden, I think I've established that the episode runs from chapters 1 and 2. All of it is one episode made up of a series of scenes. Number two, what I want to do is establish the scene divisions. So here... With the English text, I'm looking for elements like change in geographical area, change in character, who's speaking, who's talking, what what the content is. Now, in the Hebrew text, there's actually other signals that we account for that help establish the structural moments in the text. But those grammatical signals... Naturally align with what we can read intuitively as the normal breaks. That's that's how they're communicating. And so we're we're still on good grounds to have our English Bible open and we're just looking as careful readers. Here's what I generally see. Number one, God's call to Jonah to go on mission, a mission of befriending, a mission with a message that will ultimately result in an encounter with God's steadfast love. Then we get Jonah's rebellion, and that rebellion gets unpacked over 13 verses. Then in verse 17, the Lord appoints the great fish, God's response to Jonah's rebellion. And then in chapter 2, Jonah's response to God's response. So I'm I'm seeing a foreseen development within the overall episode before we get to the new word of the Lord a second time to Jonah. Consider literary features. Literary context. Well, we're at the beginning of the book. But we're in a greater book called the book of the twelve. So we might pause and consider, well, Is there any reason that Obadiah might come before Jonah? Well, what's Obadiah about? It's about a nation's pride and arrogance and hatred of Jerusalem and how much Edom celebrated at Jerusalem's destruction. And then we read Jonah and we find out, huh, Jonah, the prophet of Yahweh, an Israelite prophet, is living and thinking in the same way that the Edomites were about Jerusalem. He's living and thinking that same way about the Ninevites. That might inform our reading of the book of Jonah because it's in the greater book of the 12 minor prophets, which all were on a single scroll in Jesus' Bible. Plot development and characterization. Well, I'll just pause. We would want to know where's the story going. Well, he's going to arrive in Nineveh, ultimately... We, we can sit down and read this whole book because it's so short. We could read the front and the back. Plot development, characterization. All I want to draw attention to is this. If you read carefully, there's very little in chapter 1 about Jonah. At least as an actor. He's an object. But not as much an actor. Consider... Yahweh calls Jonah to Nineveh. Yahweh sends the storm when Jonah disobeys. Yahweh intensifies it to keep the sailors from rescuing him. Yahweh provides a great fish to rescue the prophet. Yahweh is the object of Jonah's praise from the belly of the fish. Yahweh. He's actually the main character in Jonah 1, even though the book has the title Jonah. In fact, I would say that's actually the case in almost all Old Testament narrative. But we can't call all the books Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. So, Jonah works. But this is a book that's designed to let Jonah be what we would call a literary foil. His life and activity and thinking pushes us away from himself to the one who he should be more like. Jonah is a foil to God's sovereignty and His steadfast love. I say steadfast love because when I get into the speech that is at the end of the episode, I'm looking for a main idea for the episode. And I come to these words, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Yet now Jonah, as we're going to hear next week, has encountered steadfast love. The same steadfast love that pushed him away from the Ninevites. Chapter 4, I know, God, I knew, God, that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's why I didn't want you, I didn't want that steadfast love to encounter the Ninevites. This is a book about God's steadfast love. And Jonah was very ready to receive it it when he was the recipient, but he was not thrilled to let it impact others. How does the narrative anticipate Christ? Oh, there's so many places we could go. Jesus gives us a clue clue with the three days in the belly and how it compares to His resurrection. We see Jesus embodying as one who enters into the world, embodying steadfast love in order to save sinners. But ultimately, chapter 1 is about a call to get where Jonah ends up getting by the end of his belly time. His time in the belly of the whale ultimately gets him where he should have been. It got him to the point of celebrating steadfast love. It took three days for his own resurrection. So how would I state this in a single sentence? I think this episode is... is about growing in our own ability to celebrate God's steadfast love and looking at the life of Jonah and being able to parallel it to our own in our own journey. Will we respond when we face the trial, when we experience the deliverance? Will we celebrate and allow our eyes to move beyond self, beyond our perspective of neighbor, and move to God and His passion and His character? So, here's my outline of the first part. And I've taken the steadfast love statement, which I've identified I think is the main idea, and I've unpacked it this way. Jonah's first experience of Yahweh's steadfast love. Yahweh's initial call for a mission of steadfast love. Jonah's personal need for steadfast love. Yahweh's demonstration of steadfast love. And Jonah's positive response to Yahweh's steadfast love. And you can preach it with different outlines, but that's the outline I would preach from right now. Just, that's, that's what I got out of the text. As I looked at it and meditated and came to just trying to align with the purpose of God. Our time is up, passed up. May the Lord help us read His Bible more faithfully. Go in peace.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.